medicine today. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Jeffrey Stern. Dr. Stern is the founder of the Neural Stem Cell Institute in Albany, New York, and he's the head of the translational research for the Institute. Dr. Stern, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us by telephone, and I should note to our listeners that the uh, Institute has a wide variety of initiatives uh, looking at your website, I believe you have nine different research areas, but our focus today will be on vision and the use of RPE cells to possibly renew and regenerate vision deficiencies. So perhaps the place to start, Dr. Stern, is to uh, give us a brief introduction to this particular research, and we can talk about the status and the future direction. For background, the Institute is focused on neural stem cells of various sorts, and these have a wide applicability, as mentioned, which can be seen from the website. Several years ago, my wife, Sally Temple, and I, and she is a co-founder of the Neural Stem Cell Institute in Rensselaer, New York, um, noted that drusen in macular degeneration patients appear lenticular, appear to be lens tissue. At that time, there was a lot of interest in transdifferentiation of RPE cells, which I've never adhered to. We took a different approach. We said these cells are very early differentiated. So in the back of our eyes, the RPE cells have not divided since six weeks of gestation, very early in embryonic development, and took these cells out more recently and treated them as if they were embryonic cells. And they had many embryonic properties. They were able to self-renew. They were able to give rise to a variety of differentiated progeny, not of the endoderm, but of mesoderm and ectoderm lineages. So they're not pluripotent, but surprisingly multipotent and able to self-replicate. So this allowed us to source for large numbers of human RPE cells. Now this combined with macular degeneration pathophysiology, and this is a very common disease, about 10 million Americans are affected by it to one degree or another. And it's a defect, it's due to a defect in the RPE layer, which is a single cell layer underlying the neural retina and supporting the neural retina. Very amenable to transplantation we're also easily able to monitor the effect of transplanted cells into that macular RPE layer and, importantly, remove them if we need to, if there's a ectopic growth or, or inappropriate growth. Many transplant scientists also take advantage of the immune privilege inside the eye, although we find that is compromised when surgical procedures and disease states are in play. So we took RP from patients, from donors, and treated these cells as if they were early embryonic cells and found they proliferated widely and differentiated into a variety of physiological progeny, bone, fat, cartilage, as well as RPE. And we also found a group of progeny 
that were not normally present. And these pathological progeny produce drusen protein. And drusen are the hallmark and beginning of macular degeneration. So our first application of these cells is a disease in a dish model where we are testing drug candidates to slow the process of the RPE stem cell differentiating into inappropriate progeny. I should add that this view of macular degeneration is somewhat unique and arose from the work uh, looking at the RP stem cell. Previously, most clinicians and clinician scientists considered macular degeneration to be due to an aging of the RP layer so that the RP cells were no longer able to handle the highly active metabolic byproducts of vision produced by the retina, which is one of their main functions. And in our view, rather than the cells getting aged and unable to handle, these older cells, which have not divided, are still quite young, and then they misbehave, if you will, overproducing the drusen protein. Another reason I'm going to move more towards the stem cell biology for our interest in the RPE stem cell is that developmental biology defines lineages relating the early embryonic stem cell from the blastocyst, which is pluripotent, to endodermal, mesodermal, ectodermal stem cells, which are quite early. In looking at an early embryo development, one of the first cells to terminally differentiate is the RPE black layer seen behind very early eye formation occurs well before limb development and, and et cetera. One of the corollaries of this is that working with pluripotent stem cells, such as embryonic stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells, their spontaneous formation of RP, we believe, because of this close relationship in lineage, and that the RPE stem cell is an intermediate between the pluripotent cells and true RPE. Now, several groups are busy differentiating spontaneously RPE from pluripotent stem cells, and there are transplantations ongoing currently with early promising results. The cells are tolerated, and some visual improvement is observed in AMD patients. Is the strategy to use RPE cells to affect the therapy, or is the strategy to look at various drugs that might prevent this abnormal misbehavior, as you called it? Excellent question to bring up that distinction. And I consider the two approaches quite distinct. Our first effort, and the one that I believe is closest to clinical application, is to use the cells in vitro to identify drug candidates that prevent their transformation into macular degeneration cells, the disease-in-a-dish approach that involves biologically guided screening of drug candidates. And we have two now, one known safe for another indication, which we're beginning to test in animal models of AMD. Unfortunately, there are a few very accurate models that, that we can work with. The second approach, the transplantation or replacement therapy, which is widely held by the public and most scientists and clinicians as the value of stem cells is a very distinct approach. Here, 
we want to grow up RPE to replace those lost in degenerative disease. And we are following both of these pathways. The transplantation pathway, we're just beginning with our cell, the RPE stem cell, derived RPE, to transplant to animal models. There's a great challenge with embryonic stem cells for immune matching, also for driving that very early differentiation into RP to have pure population, so we're not making the other types of cells that embryonic or any pluripotent stem cell is poised to create. We feel that allowing nature to guide those first few weeks of development lessens the challenge in obtaining stable and pure populations of RP to transplant. And further, the FDA needs to find a cell population to approve for study. So the strategies that I've read about to date by Pfizer, by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, by Johnson Johnson, by Stem Cells Inc. is now participating, all look for highly differentiated cells, well-defined and stable populations to transplant. My belief is that, and our strategy is that, yes, the cell population has to be well-defined, but there may be an earlier differentiation state where the properties of a stem cell to proliferate and form the appropriate tissues when in the right microenvironment, the correct niche, will be more efficacious. And so we're boosting our safety, if you will, by using a later adult type stem cell, the RPE stem cell, and then allowing a less differentiated form of that already partially committed progenitor. If I may ask, in terms of this second approach with a donor, you have all the issues that you avoid with autologous transplantation, but I'm presuming being that a patient has a defective RPE cells to start with, you can't use autologous transplantation in this case? I practice retina and vitreous, as well as work in the lab, and will harvest from my patients RPE stem cells, which we are able to expand in the lab. We have not transplanted them back yet, but the RPE stem cell certainly allows autologous approaches and an intermediate, which is to have a bank of various HLA types and begin to match as we learn about the causes of rejection and immune reaction, such as done for kidney or heart and et cetera. Mm-hmm. The hope that induced pluripotent stem cells allow an autologous type transplant is also quite alive. Where skin cell fermentation is taken, genes are inserted to transform that cell back into an early stem cell, and then that is expanded and differentiated to the appropriate type for transplantation. And we're excited to follow that work. Currently, it seems that the genes inserted create an immunogenicity. And so the model, if you will, on the one hand, is wonderful, and we're very supportive and excited and participate with that, but are finding there is an immunogenicity, even for autologous-induced pluripotent stem cells because of the genes that are inserted. For an older population, such as those with macular degeneration, immune suppression is challenging. And so our motivation to minimize the amount of immune suppression is higher than for most transplant indications. 
there are these two very drastically different approaches, and you indicated earlier that using various types of drugs to minimize the abnormal behavior of RPE cells is the one that's most mature. Is that correct? In our hands, that is correct, in our institute. Companies such as Advanced Cell Therapeutics are already transplanting RPE cells into patients, and so they are ahead of us, if you will, in, in toto, and their product is the cell transplantation or RPE cell replacement therapy as well as the London Project, and I think California Institute of Regenerative Medicine is approved. I'm not certain if they've started yet. So what's the status of your technology as it relates to prospective patients? Are you about to enter clinical trials? Is that the status? The next step for us is creation of the GMP, good manufacturing process cells. And we were fortunate to recently receive a relatively large grant from the Empire State Stem Cell Board to allow us to do that. And this will start March 2013. We'll take a year or two to produce those cells, at which point experiments are still needed with the GMP lines, and then we would apply to the FDA for study in patients. I saw on your website the notice about that grant. Congratulations. Thank you. That gave us the opportunity to achieve what we've worked so long and hard to be in a position to attempt. And we're, we're excited and optimistic that we can progress to clinical trials within the next four years. And as many of our listeners know from other interviews, that's a relatively short time for these types of translational studies. I should say four years to get permission to begin trials is our goal then the trials would have to begin at a much greater expense than even the $10 million grant that will allow us to prepare the cells for a trial. I should add there's a third approach from the RP stem cell, which I'm very excited about and has wide applicability to other disease states. So growing the disease in the dish, which is for induced pluripotent stem cells, enormously powerful where we can take known genetic makeup and expand these cells into the heart or into skin or into retina and then study the specific disease states. And and the RP allows us to do that for specific patients and disease states as well. So the disease in a dish model is one. We screen for drugs. The replacement therapy that now we have a source to obtain many human cells that can be used to replace those lost to degenerative diseases or trauma. And then The third approach is that these cells are resident. So most people, including myself, typically think of stem cells as cells that can divide, reproduce many of themselves, and then make many different kinds of other cell types. And that's very true. But for scientists who work on stem cells, really, we don't want them to become other cells. They're poised to do so, but we want them to be stem cells. And the niche, the microenvironment that these cells reside in, is what defines their dormancy. And dormancy in the adult is a very powerful characteristic of stem cells in general. The bone marrow, we have a million in our bone marrow. Injury or inflammation will activate one that can replace the entire hemopoietic system in a person. And that's our natural, normal repair mechanism. Now, These cells arise very early and then are in a powerful niche that holds them dormant through life. I often think 
um, some of the great biologists of last century would describe ontogeny as recapitulating phylogeny, which is quite true. And so in animals, lower animals like frogs or salamanders, for example, or fish, the RPE is activated by injury or inflammation to repair and replace retina or brain. Not the RPE for brain, but there are stem cells in these lower animals, and the salamander will grow an entire limb with the nerves, will regrow parts of its central nervous system. In higher animals, such as the adult human, that ability to repair central nervous system tissue, such as RP or retina, is inhibited. I believe the mechanism for repair is there, but inhibited for some other evolutionary game. Now, with that as background, we can remove these RP cells from their niche and activate them into a stem cell state from people. Can we do that in situ? So is there an approach that would allow us to activate these cells for a few weeks to turn the human retina or human RPE into that of a salamander for a few weeks? And this is another avenue of research with, I believe, great potential therapeutic value, which our institute is pursuing. We are more ahead with spinal cord injury, where stem cells can be placed into a mouse model of the injured spinal cord, and improvements in ability to walk are quite evident. Those stem cells rapidly find their niche and settle in. We found sustained release stem cell activating factor. We knew of a stem cell activating factor which we put in a sustained release formulation, which when injected into the spinal cord injured mice with stem cells, promoted further improvement. And in control experiments, where we injected the stem cell activating factor only, we also saw improvement. And we scratched our heads for quite a while and then realized, well, there are dormant, endogenous stem cells present that are activated. And we were able to demonstrate that in spinal cord injury. A similar approach for RPE is very attractive to me, where we can not have to replace the cells, but rather just stimulate them in situ. That sounds a very unique and intriguing approach, and I'll be anxious to see how uh, progress continues in that particular area. Uh, Dr. Stern, you've shared with us some very intriguing scientific approaches. Perhaps a little bit of background on your institute and the model that you use would be helpful to our audience. As many know, the standard pipeline from basic research toward therapeutic discovery is slowed in America and the world right now. The expense is enormous, roughly multi-billion dollars per drug and over a decade or two of investment prior to any revenue coming back. The grant funding for carrying out the basic research is also not growing as rapidly as it once was. So we found ourselves struggling within the traditional infrastructure for biomedical research about a, five or six years ago and thought, we would set up an oasis in this valley of death between discovery and therapeutic products. Of course, in a short while, we found ourselves in the fort out in the middle of Death Valley and struggled. Our original directions were not borne out. And in that time of struggling for funding, and we were about 30 people that were supporting with expensive research projects, we looked for ways to cut expense, honestly, 
and found that the factors that we feed stem cells in order to keep them as stem cells every day were a major expense and labor effort. And we took those growth factors that Jamie Thompson and Yamanaka and, and John Gurdon, the recent Nobel laureates, had worked out, and we put them in a standard sustained release uh, polymer so that we would only have to feed once a week instead of every day, which the young scientists loved because they had a day off. It wasn't like having twins to start an experiment. And then the surprise for us was that the stem cells themselves were quite improved. The cultures were more homogenous. There were more cells. There were more stem cell markers and fewer differentiation markers in these cultures of pluripotent stem cells or neural stem cells or mesenchymal stem cells that we're working with and found very quickly that other stem cell scientists were eager to use these, we call them stem beads, sustained-release growth factor formulations. And we've begun, we call it the self-sustaining stem cell research model or the evergreen model. We've begun to fund the research through the manufacture and distribution in a for-profit spin-off uh, partner by the sale of these stem beads and have developed more through serendipity and trial and error a model where the not-for-profit basic research can be smoothed and supported by creating tools to do the very research we're doing, which are shorter-term pipeline for revenue generation one year to develop a research tool rather than the 10 years for an FDA therapeutic trial. And we're hoping that this small amount of revenue from the stem cell research tool company will carry us across towards therapeutic development over the next decade, which, if successful, will then also feed back into the small entity. We're the only, I think, independent stem cell research institute in America and certainly the only neural stem cell research institute. And it's been a very interesting education, interacting with businessmen, with the attorneys for the not-for-profit, for-profit relation, public-private partnerships that are needed to accomplish sustainable research program. It's a fascinating model, and uh, while there's challenges, as you've indicated, it certainly seems like it's providing some opportunities to do the pioneering studies that your colleagues have underway. We're excited, and we're hiring busily right now is a positive time for us the next five years. We're well-funded and growing steadily in this new model, and maybe not so small all of a sudden. Having a very small institute allows a focus on stem cell research, and we find those who are very dedicated to that particular avenue of endeavor are attracted to this small community of like-minded people. You know, we believe that, of course, there are many wonderful directions for new therapies being developed, but the great potential of stem cells to repair and regenerate holds enormous promise for medicine to move forward into the next era. Yeah, it certainly is a new frontier, and I congratulate you and your team for the pioneering work that you have done to date and what you have in process at this point. So, Dr. Stern, I thank you for taking the time to join us by telephone today and share your philosophy and your progress. I remind our listeners that Dr. Stern's Institute website is at www.nstemcell.org. 
And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I thank you again for listening to this particular interview. Thank you very much. Thank you.